For some, buying a home can seem scary. It's a big investment, and if you're a first-time home buyer, it can be a difficult landscape to navigate or even know where to start. Some people think managing money is easy. This is a podcast for the rest of us. Talking about this stuff can be intimidating. That's why TuneIn has teamed up with U.S. Bank to create this podcast series. Our goal is to introduce ideas, tell stories, and give you some tips to help you improve your financial IQ. Welcome to The Save Space, brought to you by U.S. Bank. Today, we are talking about buying a home. Hello, everyone. I'm Kelly Sutton. Welcome back to another episode of The Save Space. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to invest in a new property, we can all use a little help to make smart decisions before and after the purchase. I'm lucky enough to own a home. I know firsthand that you'll definitely want to be prepared. You basically have to learn a new language. Okay, let's play a game. I'm going to list off a few terms, and you're going to keep track of the terms that you already know. Ready? Amateurization. Closing cost. Debt ratio. Earnest money. Escrow. Good faith estimate. Origination fee. Principal. Settlement statement. Title company. Okay, how'd you do? (laughs) If you got 10 out of 10, congratulations. Are you available for an interview? Now, if you're like me, when I first started out, I probably had an idea of maybe two or three of those terms. The point is, buying a home can be complicated. Unfortunately, I can't promise you your real estate license by the end of this episode. However, I can say we'll talk to a few experts and hear a few stories that will help give you a better understanding of what it takes to buy a home so you can figure out your own game plan. Sound good? Okay, let's get started. Today's guests include Hope King from Cheddar News. She'll sit down with Joanna Umali from Unison Homeownership Investors. They'll help us prepare for that first big step toward owning a home, the down payment. Our friend Josh Modell from TalkHouse will be speaking with Mac McCon of Merge Records for a slightly different take on finding a home. And of course, we will close out the show once again with money girl Laura Adams. She'll offer up a wide range of tips that could help you get in prime position to buy some prime real estate. If you're in the market for a home or just thinking about it, you've come to the right place. You are now entering the save space. Now, in buying a home, one of the first things that you'll have to figure out is your number, the infamous down payment. I know down payments can seem intimidating, maybe even out of reach. However, there's plenty of work you can do in advance to put yourself in a good position to buy. To help us figure out that number and the steps to get there, Hope King from Cheddar News sat down with Joanna Umali from Unison Homeownership Investors. Unison is a group of real estate and investment professionals with a lot of know-how. In fact, they just released a super interesting report about home affordability throughout the U.S., which they'll get into shortly. Okay, let's send it over to Hope and Joanna for some advice so we can map out a path to the home of our dreams. Thanks for having Cheddar on the Save Space podcast, Kelly. We're joining forces with TuneIn and U.S. Bank to get some help on what is typically the biggest purchase people make. Joining me now to help some new home buyers raise their financial IQs is Joanna Umali from Unison Home Ownership Investors. Joanna, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited. Everybody's excited about 
getting a home, maybe, if that's part of your life plan. But where should we start? I mean, the down payment seems like the most logical place, right? How much should you really be putting down for a down payment? Definitely. So I would say the first thing to start for a down payment would just be to start small. So when you make small changes, you can start to see really big differences as time goes on. So just making little small tweaks to your daily life. So whether that means, you know, meal prepping on Sundays for the weeks where you're not buying lunch at work or just walking to dinner instead of taking a lift. So it's just really starting incrementally so it's not super overwhelming. Another way to save for a down payment is really just to take a good look at what your monthly expenses are. So taking a look at your credit cards, how much of an interest rate are you paying? You know, a lot of lenders are really open to working with you to lower your rate so it doesn't hurt to ask. Okay, well, those are good steps. How far in advance should you be taking these steps to start saving? I would say start saving right away. You know, even if you feel like buying a home is many years away, it doesn't hurt to start putting a little bit away just at a time. Okay, so maybe opening a new savings account and just not touching it for a while and knowing that that's going to be your little nest egg to start. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I see a lot of people, especially when they get their first jobs in high school, you know, just open a savings account, put a little bit away every month, and then you can start to see a build and just try not to touch it. So it's really just starting small and really letting it grow and, you know, using that eventually for your down payment if you want to buy a home. And speaking of down payments, what typically, I mean, 20% seems to be the norm, but what are some other options for how much you could put down and what differences does that really kind of make in the overall payment and the overall price of the home at the end of the day? Well, you're right. In terms of 20% down, that tends to be the magic number. And that's because when you put 20% of a down payment, you only have to get an 80% mortgage. And so what that means is you qualify for a better interest rate, your monthly payment will be lower because you're not paying private mortgage insurance, and you're not taking on so much debt. That being said, however much you put down for a down payment is really specific to your financial situation and your budget. So if you have 5% down or 10%, you'll have to get a 90% loan or a 95% loan. And with that comes a higher monthly payment. Okay. So that's why you have to really start saving for that down payment first. Let's talk about credit because also factored into this when the banks are looking at you is your credit score and your credit history. Explain just how important maybe all of these components are to getting the best rates when you do have a big, big loan like a mortgage. Sure. So when you're looking to purchase a home, a bank decides how responsible you are of a borrower by your credit score. So it's always worth it to have the best credit score because not only will you qualify for the best rate, but you're able to um, you know, show that bank that you're more responsible and they're more likely to extend that to you. And what is the right length of time for your credit history before you start looking or you're applying for one of these loans? I don't think there's a specific right time for everybody. It's really specific to your financial history. I would say if you have enough of the down payment and you have a cushion and your credit score is up to par and you're looking at all of the varying lenders and banks and their options and seeing that your monthly payments can fit within your budget, then that would probably be a good time to really start thinking about buying a home seriously. All right. And typically speaking, if you're looking at your credit score, 
how much of a difference in your payments can be reflected in your credit score differences. So if you have, let's say, you know, above 750 as a credit score or even above 800, let's say, what's that difference in the overall payments if, if you do want to improve your credit score? How much of an incentive is it? Well, each bank and lender have varying requirements in terms of what your credit score would mean to the interest rate that they give you. But it's always best to aim for the highest credit score possible because across the board, if you're you know, having the top tier credit score, you're going to qualify for the best rate. Therefore, you're going to be able to lower your monthly payment. And what is the best way to increase your credit score before you get into this process? Well, I would say the best way would be first to start by paying your bills on time, making sure you're not overutilizing your credit. So the general rule of thumb is not overutilizing more than 30% of your available credit. So for example, if you have a $10,000 credit line, you don't want to put more than $3,000 on there as a regular balance. And that way, banks and lenders are not seeing you as so much of a risk because you're maxing out that credit line. You know, And in another way to raise your credit is to just be aware of what it looks like. You know, There are a lot of free resources out there where you can pull your credit report. So number one, you can make sure that all the information is accurate because if there's inaccurate information, that could actually lower your credit score. And second, you can see how much, you know, making your monthly payments on time, your credit utilization is affecting your score. So it's really just being aware of what's going on on a constant basis. That's so important that you can actually fact check some of these reports. Let's say you do find an error. What do you do then to correct it if there's something that's not what you think it should be on your credit history? Sure. So there are a lot of resources out there that can help you correct errors on your credit report. So number one, if you're using a general credit report site, um, such as Credit Karma, they have resources to help you um, fight against incorrect information. Or you can call the credit bureaus yourself and see if they can remove that for you. What are some of the most common types of errors that people have discovered? I mean, I didn't know that you could even do that before you told me. So what are some of the things that I should be looking for when I fact check these reports? Sure. I mean, so from what I've seen is you're just making sure that all of the right credit cards on your history belong to you, first and foremost. That's such an easy, like simple mistake that happens. And a lot of people don't realize it and they just gloss over it. Um, and just making sure that your payments that are being made on time are being reflected. So if you're making it on time, then your credit score is being increased Okay, so maybe sometimes if the date's wrong or something like that, you can go back and correct it. That's really, really helpful. Now, let's talk about the process of refinancing. Let's say you've already purchased your home. You've been living in it for a couple of years. What? Let's start with what refinancing is and why it might be beneficial. Sure. So refinancing happens when you already own your home and you're looking to possibly lower your interest rate. And so that would be beneficial when you can lower your interest rates so you have a lower monthly payment. Um, Historically, people have said that if you can have at least a 2% lower interest rate, it's a good time to refinance. But today, a lot of lenders are saying that if you can at least save 1%, then it might give you incentive to refinance too. Okay. And how do you keep track of these different rates that might be available to you so that you know it might be time to refinance? I would say, you know, just keep an eye out 
online publications you read, but also if you have a financial advisor, they're a great resource just to check in with um, once in a while to see if there are ways that you can save money. All right. And what happens when you do start to refinance and then maybe a lo- another lower rate? I mean, you know, they change all, all the time. Is there a good way to time this type of process? I would say that is a very, you know, specific situation for your own financial, you know, budget. So it would be something that you'd probably want to discuss with your financial advisor to see if it's the smart thing for you to do at the time. And is there any right or wrong and how many times you can refinance? Does that hurt your credit score? What typically is the best practice there? I would say there is no best time to refinance. I mean, there are general waves of refinance phases where a lot of people are doing it because interest rates have gone historically lower. So in terms of how many times when you do it, you know, it would just be best to consult with your financial advisor just to make sure that you're taking advantage of it at the right times. Good to know. Good to know. And then I guess finally, when it comes to even looking at your home as an investment, a lot of people maybe are looking at it to grow a family. Maybe some of them are looking to flip the house. I don't know. But let's talk about these different scenarios. Is it typically the best idea to buy into a home you can grow into? A lot of people kind of talk about this idea that you should maybe buy for more bedrooms than you need currently or, you know, buy for the school that you want to be. I mean, are those things that still hold true today? Sure. So a lot of people want to buy the home that they see as their forever home. You know, whether it's you know, near the city that they work in or it's near a school district that they want to send their future kids to. Everyone looks to the home that they're currently buying as that one. And so I think with that, it's possible if it works for you in a smart way. If you can easily afford it, it's within your budget and you have those cash reserves, then absolutely go for the home of your dreams. And then what about those that are looking at homes as a safe place to put their investments? Is it a right type of philosophy to look at a home as sort of an asset, like a stock that you would just put some money into and hope that it appreciates? Does it always happen that way? Homes are generally considered a good investment, but in terms of seeing it as an asset, I would say that they can be just as risky as a stock. So it would be smarter to diversify your portfolio and not putting all of your wealth just into your home and having that tied up. Right. And as you said, once you put in that cushion, it's sort of stuck there. You can't withdraw it. It's not like a checking account, right? Where you can just get money from that house if you if you need it. Absolutely. All right. Well, a lot to think about. Thank you so much, Joanna. Joanna Umali is from Unison. Thanks again for joining us here at Cheddar and tune in for the Save Space podcast. Thanks, Hope and Joanna. Very informative. Now, when it comes to figuring out that down payment, remember, everyone's situation is different and every little bit helps. If you're interested in buying a home, create a plan and be prepared. Coming up, a different take on finding a home. Now we know it's hard for families, but finding the right home for your business can be just as hard. More to come. This episode of the Save Space podcast is brought to you by U.S. Bank. For everyone working toward their goal, U.S. Bank is there to help. Whether you're buying a home or dealing with unexpected expenses, U.S. Bank wants to help you grow your financial IQ so you can handle whatever life throws at you. 
From personal finance to business strategies, access free resources that will help you improve your financial literacy. There's something for everyone. Visit usbank.com slash financial IQ for more information. Okay, let's get back to the safe space. The path to finding a home is a journey, especially if you're trying to find a home for your business. Mac McCon co-founded Merge Records with Laura Balance nearly 30 years ago. They've put out records for notable acts like Arcade Fire, She and Him, Zoe Deschanel and M. Ward's Project, and Neutral Milk Hotel, just to name a few. Our friend Josh Modell at TalkHouse recently spoke with Mac to learn more about their adventures in real estate. From their humble beginnings renting a room in a house to finally purchasing a property, finding the right place is all about being patient. And sometimes it takes a little luck. Let's take a listen. Can you talk a little bit about Merge's first office, which I am assuming was somebody's house? Yes. So Merge was originally in Laura's house that she was renting and sharing with a couple other people in Chapel Hill. And I guess the first real move that Merge made was to take over one of those rooms. Uh So then it was just Laura and one other housemate, and then Merge was in the third bedroom. And at least at the time, it was pretty cheap to live here in Chapel Hill, especially renting a house in, in the neighborhood where Laura was. So that was where it was for maybe like a year or something like that. And then Laura moved houses. So for instance, in that first house, we had a dubbing deck where we dubbed all the tapes that we made. The first two releases were tapes, Uh you know, the wax tape and the bricks tape. Uh And then her house was where we would have record stuffing parties where bands would come over and help us put their records together. You know, we had the sleeves printed in one place and then we had the records pressed somewhere else, probably United Record Pressing, and we'd get together and put them all together. So that was all happening in her house, one house and then another house. And in that second house, again, it was just a rental that she shared it with some people and Merge Office was kind of like this little closet-sized room. Mm. And then the first place that we rented that was not in Laura's house was an office in a building in Carborough that's still there. It was just like a one room in this building. And that was around the time when we started hiring people to get the mail for us, basically. So that was kind of a big move also, having an employee. Eventually, when we hired, I think our first, maybe it was full-time employee was John Williams. Um, We moved into another office in that same building. And so we, we were still renting in this same kind of janky old building in Carborough, but we had a little bit more space. And pretty soon after we moved into that other office, a burrito place opened downstairs called Armadillo Grill. It's actually a taco place. And they brought with them a neon sign. And so in the morning around 11 a.m. when they opened, you couldn't have a phone conversation in our office anymore because the neon sign created this buzz on the phone line (laughs) that made it really irritating to try to talk on the phone. We could send faxes, I guess, but I think that neon sign probably hastened our exit from that office. Okay. And then we rented, we moved into a house that was a house that I had actually lived next door to on the end of this service road next to a Catholic school. It's like a real weird location in Chapel Hill, but we had the whole house. 
and the house had a basement. There's pictures of that basement and there's pictures of that house in the O Merge compilation, which I guess is probably our 10-year comp that we put out when we were celebrating our 10th anniversary. I mean, again, it's just an old house. So it had a kitchen and different rooms and we were just using them all as offices. But it was in that house that we put out 69 Love Songs, In the Airplane Over the Sea, Girls Can Tell, that first Trail of Dead record that we did. I mean, the only Trail of Dead record we did. It was that era. East River Pipe we started working with in that office, I think. Anyway, so that was like late 90s into 2001. And then we were looking for a place to buy because 69 Love Songs had done so well and some other records had done well. And Chapel Hill, being just the small town that it is, there's just not a lot of real estate, period. Mm. Some of the places we were looking at were just like new construction in like an office park or whatever. Just very unappealing, you know? Yeah. But Laura, I believe, had moved to Durham at this time. And, you know, Durham's about 10 miles away. It's where I grew up. And at that time, Durham was the cheapest place in the Triangle to live or buy a house or probably buy any kind of real estate. Cheaper than Raleigh, certainly, and cheaper than Chapel Hill. So Laura was, I mean, we were on the lookout for stuff, but I think she was just riding her bike around and saw a for sale sign in this building downtown Durham. I was a little bit wary of having the office in Durham because we live in Chapel Hill. My wife has a restaurant in Chapel Hill. You know, I grew up in Durham. I didn't feel like I wanted to live in Durham again. Working there is one thing, but, Mm. you know, we were choosing to leave the town where we started the label and all this, even though, you know, it's a 20-minute commute. It's not a big deal, but I was still slightly hesitant. Now, almost 20 years later, I think I'm maybe like one of three people that live in Chapel Hill that work at Merge and everyone else lives in Durham and the office is still in this building that we bought in 2001. We bought the building in the summer of 2001. And that was the same summer that our current label manager, Christina Rents, who you know, started working at Merge yep. as college radio person. Mm-hmm. So we're still in the same building. At that time, we bought it, but we kept renting out the ground floor. It's a, it's a two-story building, plus it has a basement. So we kept renting out the ground floor just because we didn't have that many people working at Merge that we needed both floors. So we were using the basement for mail order and storing stuff. And then the top floor is where our offices were. And we did that for a while, rented it to a couple different companies. And then eventually we just took over the ground floor. And so we occupy the whole building now. And it's awesome. What's interesting is that at the time, I remember Durham had a reputation for having a higher crime rate because like any city, there's bad neighborhoods. So we were, I remember asking a real estate guy like, well, you know, we're having our employees come work here. Is there safety issues when they're leaving work at night or whatever, walking to their car, et cetera? And he was like, look around. There's no one down here to rob. You know, like Durham (laughs) was kind of a ghost town downtown. It really had been since the 80s. I mean, when I was growing up in Durham, we never went downtown. There was nothing down there. One of the few things that has kind of been around this whole time was Carolina Theater, which is just a couple blocks from our office. And actually, the first night of the Merge 30th Festival is taking place at the Carolina Theater a couple days from now. But there wasn't really much else down there. There wasn't even like a coffee place or anything. And now, fast forward to 2019, and downtown Durham is bananas. There's a million restaurants, bars, coffee places, hotels. It really was a transformation that people had been predicting for a long time, but then all of a sudden it really happened, and we were just lucky enough to buy our building 
when we did because we couldn't afford it now. Did it seem at the time like a scary amount of money to be investing or was it not that huge of a deal for you guys? It, it didn't seem that scary because it was unusual for us to all of a sudden have cash. But like I said, some records had done <laughs> well and this is in the CD era, soon to be followed by the download era, which was even better for cash flow. And so I think cash-wise, we were in a good position to like put down a substantial down payment so that even though you know, when you're buying a building as a business, you can't do a 30-year loan like when you're buying a house. So it was going to cost more every month than a 30-year loan would, but we could put down enough cash up front to make that loan not so big. So we were so used to having just rent overhead anyway. The idea that you could pay about that same amount every month and be owning it was very appealing. Especially so, because, like, who likes their landlord? You should probably pat yourselves on the back for making this decision, Well, right? yeah, we're so <laughs> lucky that Laura saw that sign and had already moved to Durham, and we lucked out. It's good timing. Did you have any of those building owner problems over the years? Like, have you had any, like, major things go wrong with the building or things that were... I mean, there's always something. The other day, we heard a loud noise, and it was because the ceiling tiles had fallen in someone's office because the air conditioning unit on the roof had been leaking or like collecting water and then it was going into the ceiling and then soaked the ceiling tiles and then they all f- fell out of the drop ceiling onto uh-huh. onto our CFO's desk and computer. You know, just stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, that happens. Yeah. But in general, I think it's been probably pretty standard in terms of, you know, fixing leaks in the roof membrane or water coming in to the basement from the sewer when the people next door turn on their water because they haven't repaired their own pipes. It's just like typical stuff, I think, when you're in an old building in a downtown area, you know. This is a bit of a weird question, but do you guys kind of love the building? Do you have emotional attachment to it or is it just kind of like, it works, it's great? Probably a little emotional attachment and I like the way it looks and the bricks are like this yellow color so they're not just like a standard brick I like that it's in this downtown area. You know, you can walk places now that places exist to walk to. You can walk everywhere. Right. I like going to work there. Well, that's nice. I like it more than anywhere else we had our office, that's for sure. <laughs> and you own it, which is supposed to be the smart thing to do, right? It is. I'm curious, you, you mentioned that you can't get a 30-year loan on a business building. So how short of a loan do you have to get? I think you're... it's like a 15 is the longest you can do on a commercial loan. I think. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's probably different in, from state to state, I'm assuming. I don't know. I had no idea that was a thing. Well, maybe it's just North Carolina. I don't know. Uh, I think based on what you've said, I know the answer to this question, but I have to ask it anyway. If you could do it all over again, would you do anything differently with regard to you know all the merge offices? And would you have bought something sooner? Is there anything you can think of that you'd do differently? I don't think that buying something sooner was that much of an option for us. So I think we kind of did it when we could. And that's always kind of driven our decision-making when it comes to financial stuff anyway, is being pretty conservative about stuff and pretty safe about not getting ourselves into a hole. So I don't think we could have really done it any sooner. And I'm happy with the where we ended up. Were you guys always kind of business savvy from the beginning? Like how quickly in the first years of merge did it feel like a business where you're like, oh, this is, you know, this part of this apartment or this part of this house is our office and we're claiming that on our taxes and stuff like that? It felt like, well, we have to like think about this and now we're paying rent and here's how much it's going to cost to make this many records and we think we can probably sell them for this much, et cetera. But because we weren't paying ourselves, 
and for a long time didn't have employees or whatever, it was easy to still just kind of think of it like a like an art project or something. Yeah. I think that rather than business savvy, it just felt more like we're being careful, you know. Well, 30 years in. We uh, did. Happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate you uh, sneaking in to find the time to do this. Thanks, Mac. All right. Sounds good, Josh. Take care. Wow, not exactly a traditional journey to owning a property. Now, whether you are finding a home for a business or for your own family, sometimes it just takes time. However, if you're patient, keep an open mind and are willing to make a move when you see the right property, it can really pay off. Thanks again, Josh. And thanks to you, Mac. All right, we've learned about preparing for that down payment and some tips to start on your home buying journey. Now, we heard a bit about how finding the right place is sometimes a journey in itself. Next, we're bringing in a ringer to make sense of it all. And now on to one of my favorite segments of the show. She's an author, a public speaker, the host of the super helpful and informative Money Girl podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the Money Girl right here, Miss Laura Adams. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. We love chatting with you. And today we are talking about buying a home. This can be intimidating if you haven't done it before. It really can, you know, and it's not for everybody, but if it is something that's in your future and one of your goals, it really can be fabulous. We have been looking at beautiful homes lately and I have a home, so I'm good, but it's always fun to dream. However, you need to keep those dreams really kind of grounded in reality when we're talking about what you can afford versus what you really want. So how do you set up those boundaries? So thinking about rules of thumb, um, one way is not to borrow more than two and a half times your annual income. Okay. So let's say, you know, if you're at 100000 a year, that means don't borrow more than 250000 There's another rule of thumb you can use, and that's going to keep your mortgage payment at about 25 to 30% of your monthly income. So think either in those terms about what to borrow or what your monthly payment is that you can afford based on your household income. Those are things that the bank is going to be looking at. They love those ratios. So that is, uh, that's key. So 30%, I would say, would be maybe the maximum that you'd want to spend each month on that mortgage payment. And truly, that's going to keep your stress level down too, right? It's key because if you're house rich and cash poor, you're not going to have a whole lot left over each month to save for emergencies, to save for retirement. Um, and, you know, we all want to have a beautiful home, but you don't want it to jeopardize your financial future. Exactly right. Now, you did mention home. A lot of people are looking at uh, this as a home, and there's a very sentimental feeling when you say that word home versus a piece of property that you could see as a potential investment. So how do you kind of strike that balance? Because you are looking for something as an investment, but it is going to be your home. Yeah. My grandmother, who's someone I really looked up to, uh, she was in real estate for many years she used to say houses are just sticks and bricks. And it that was a way for her to take the emotion out of a home and really look at it objectively, uh -huh. sticks and bricks. Uh -huh. Yeah, I know it is easy to imagine your lifestyle in this beautiful home and all of the things that it comes with. But it is smart to take a step back. Don't overpay. 
those emotions can run pretty high. And especially maybe if you're in a competitive market where you're trying to outbid people for a home, you can kind of go crazy. So don't let a real estate agent, a lender, anybody talk you into buying a home that you truly can't afford. I like that. Let's talk about mortgage options. There's so much jargon that comes with buying a home, a lot of terms that you might not know. So quickly go over some of the general types of mortgages and the pros and cons to each one of them. So think about two main types. There's fixed rate and there's adjustable rate. So fixed rate is just that. It means your payment is not going to change no matter what happens. I mean, the economy could just go down the drain and your your payment's going to be just fine. It's going to stay the same. That is generally a good idea, generally what I would recommend. Um, the interest rate is a little bit higher on that fixed rate. But, you know, again, it's going to give you a lot of stability. Adjustable rate could start with a lower interest rate. So it may look really attractive, but it can go up and down. That's why it's called adjustable. It can literally go up one month. And there are caps to it, but it's tied to an index. And so what that means is if the index goes up, your payment can also go up. So if you do opt for the ARM, is what it's called, ARM, Adjustable Rate Mortgage, know how high it could go. Know what that payment maximum could be. Could you still afford it if that happened? If you could, it might be a great idea. But if it could not fit into your, you know, your plan, your spending plan, I would say opt for the fixed rate mortgage. So there is the pro for the arm that you could save some on the beginning with a little bit less, but you just never know where it could skyrocket to. That's right. Now, you could perhaps refinance that mortgage down the road, but don't, you know, don't count on that. That may be an option if you've got enough equity in the home, but if you're not putting a big down payment and you don't have a lot of equity, you may have a tough time refinancing. Okay, let's talk about when the best time to buy is. I feel like spring, everybody is out house hunting. It seems like most of my friends have either purchased a house in the spring or they put their house on the market then because they felt like it was going to sell faster. Is there a better time of year to buy a house? You know, it depends on the market. If you are in an area where, let's say, there are harsh winters, there may not be a whole lot on the market in the winter. You may want to wait until... Like you said, it's springtime. People are ready to, you know, spruce up the house and the yard and and put it on the market. Um, If you've got kids, a lot of times summer's a good time to buy and sell because they're out of school. But I would say in general, people are buying and selling all year round. It's just going to vary a little bit on your market. I'm in Florida, and so it's a year-round market down Mm -hmm. there. But, you know, ask a local realtor. You know, get somebody local to work with you and ask them, is this a good time? You know, what is the advantage of buying right now versus maybe waiting six months? They may say, you know what, things are about to turn around in your favor as a buyer. It'd be smart to wait. Or they may say, nope, this is a great time. Let's, you know, let's go find a deal. I like it. Um, We've heard the saying, buy the ugliest house on the block. I know I've heard that saying. My dad used to say that. Find the least expensive house in a very expensive neighborhood. Tell us the benefit to trying to find one of these diamonds in the rough. Yeah, it it is kind of going to come down to the market value of that neighborhood. So if in general people want to be in that neighborhood, maybe it's because the schools are great or maybe because it's just, you know, really attractive or close to good shopping, then people will want to be there. So if you buy the least expensive house on the block, 
you have the opportunity to see that appreciation. That means you're making money, more money on the house. Well, you might have to put a little remodeling, you know, cost into it. You may have to do a little work to spruce it up. But for a lot of people, that's fun. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I definitely like that strategy. Okay. And I just want to touch on this if we can, foreclosures. How do you feel about that? I know you can really get a great deal, but it also comes with some risk. Yeah. You know, it's something that I've actually done before. I've, I've purchased a foreclosure as an investment property and it was fantastic. But you do have to really do your homework. And, you know, it's, it's something that you want to work with a professional about maybe work with a realtor has experience with foreclosures. You can find great deals depending on your market. Um, But in some cases, there might not be any foreclosures around just depending on where you are. But yeah, I love getting good deals on real estate. Ooh, me too. Laura, I understand that there are certain programs out there, maybe if you're a first-time homebuyer or even a veteran, that there are ways that they are helping you get into that house even quicker. Absolutely. So if you are a vet, take a look at that. Um, In some cases, you have basically nothing down or Mm -hmm. very little. Uh, FHA is another program that offers very small down payments. Even communities like, you know, your city or your county may offer first-time homebuyer programs. A realtor will know about these, so ask them. And what's interesting is that a first-time homebuyer can actually be somebody who has owned a home before. It may be that you just have not owned within the past two years or even three years. So you may qualify for a program even if you owned a home in the past. All right. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. So much incredible insight and wisdom. This type of information is so helpful. And I know our listeners are going to love every bit of it. Always a pleasure hearing from Money Girl, Laura Adams. Well, that concludes this episode. We covered a lot of ground, and I hope these conversations gave you some tools that will help you build out a plan. Buying a home can be a big leap or a series of little steps. The point is everyone's path is different. If you're dreaming of owning a home someday, there's plenty of resources out there. Do a little research, put some money aside, and don't be afraid to start your journey. And when you're finally done with your journey, well, there's no place like home. I want to thank all of my guests and contributors today who helped make this episode possible. A big thanks to Hope King. You can check her out on Cheddar as host of the show Closing Bell and her guest, Joanna Umali from Unison Home Ownership Investors. Thanks again to Mac McCon as well as Josh Modell of TalkHouse. Be sure to check out TalkHouse.com for more podcasts from their network of creators. And as always, a very big thank you to Money Girl Laura Adams for coming by the studio today. Be sure to check out her podcast, Money Girl, available on TuneIn. What I love about all of her podcasts, they're short format and shareable. Her tips are really helpful. Don't sleep on that. And of course, you can find all relevant links for all of my guests and resources in the description of this episode. I want to thank U.S. Bank for making all of this possible. Remember, you can always head to usbank.com slash financialiq for more resources. No matter how big or small your questions, their articles and education materials can help make sense of even the most complex issues. The Save Space is hosted by me, Kelly Sutton, produced at TuneIn Studios by Charles Raggio and Jenner Pasqua, sound engineered and edited by Kevin Currigian, with additional support from Joyce Reiser, Stratton Easter, and Andrew Broadhead. Please be sure to subscribe so you get alerted to all of our future episodes when they drop. And don't forget to like, comment, and share with all your friends and family. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Safe Space. And we'll see you on the next episode when we're going to talk about safe online practices. Until next time.